What's going on, guys? Welcome to a new episode of Saw Something Scary. Jeff Wright, Derek Zoo here with you. Jeff, what's going on, buddy? How are you? Man, I'm on cloud nine. We have spent about an hour talking off air, and it's been good to catch up with you and hash out some some stuff. So I, I, I'm quite primed to talk about this movie, which also was a pleasant experience. I'm just, I'm doing well, man. How about you? Good, man. I'm good. Yeah, we're uh, we got some world domination planned. We're trying to get into effect. So stay tuned for uh, for that over the next upcoming six to twelve months. We look forward to uh, filling you guys in on it more as the time goes by. I'm pumped about uh, I'm pumped about talking about this movie. I don't know if uh, if you and I've ever really like gotten into it or not, but I think this movie is the reason that I'm a horror movie fan. Oh my! Okay, so we're uncovering roots here. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we're going to be talking about 1986's The Fly with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. But before we get into that. Let's get into everyone's favorite part of the show. Jeff hates trailers. All right, Jeff, I've got two trailers for you this week. Um, both of them look crazy. So uh, I, this may be one of those times where I tell you that you should probably go watch both of them. Okay, cool by me. <clears throat> but I'll give you the synopsis and you tell me how you feel about it. The first one is a movie called Antlers. And the synopsis is this. A small-town Oregon teacher and her brother, the local sheriff, become entwined with a young student harboring a dangerous secret with frightening consequences. Uh, this this stars Carrie Russell and Jesse Plemons. It's directed by Scott Cooper, and it's produced by uh, Guillermo del Toro. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the, the premise there sounds kind of pedestrian, you know. Like, I, mm-hmm. uh, Carrie Russell, though, is a good get, and I don't know what she's been up to since, I think it was called The Russians, mm-hmm. but uh, that, that lady can act, and I'd be glad to see her again. Uh, Jesse <laughs> Plemons is uh, not a guy I've thought of in a while, so uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. You, you think the trailer is worth going to watch? I definitely do. Um, I, the synopsis is pedestrian, as you said, but watching the trailer, I was like, oh, oh okay, I'll I'll give this a gander. So I, I don't know if I'll be able to watch it in theaters or not. Um, there's no release date on it yet. It's still in post-production. But the trailer hooked me enough that I'm like, okay, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. When you said Antlers, the first thing that went through my head was, that sounds like a uh, Kevin Smith project. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Don't you do this to me, Zoo. But uh, I don't know. It sounds like a safer endeavor. Yeah. It, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, and then I don't know if you know much about Scott Cooper, but if you don't, this is the thing that I'll tell you that you'll love. He directed Hostiles. OK, OK. Well, then let's do uh, let's do the Antler trailer. Are you going to put that in the Facebook? Uh, group? Yes. Yes. I'll put that in the Facebook group. All right. For sure. Uh, second trailer, second and final trailer for the week is for a movie called Underwater. Yeah. And have you seen this? I saw the like Facebook or Twitter ad for it. I can't remember which one, but this okay. has um, Twilight Girl in it. Yeah, Kristen Stewart. There you go. Thank you. That uh, that was the, my I'm in my late 30s moment for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got. Is your birthday next Wednesday? Uh, it may be. Let's not mention it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you can just cut that out. No, no. I'm, I'm being uh, I'm being facetious. It's just I'm at that point where every uh, additional number gets increasingly uncomfortable. If you know what I mean. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for remembering. It's kind of you to remember. Uh, it's a, it's Tuesday. Uh, I've been telling oh, everybody that, in my that's life. Right. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I okay. So I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna mention this to you, but I, I feel like I need to now. Um, I kind of have a pretty cool birthday present coming your way. Oh man, really? Yeah. Um, and if you want, well, when you when you get it, we'll 
you know, you can do whatever you want to with it, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. And I think you will be too. Yeah. Well, that's super kind of you, man. I really appreciate that. Ah, it's no problem at all, bud. You're uh, you're a generous guy. Ah, it's no problem, man. I'm glad to do it. Uh, hopefully you like it. I don't, <laughs> you may, you may not at all. Well, I'm super excited now. Um, there's not a lot about my birthday other than like my kids get excited because it's dad's birthday and they know they get cake. <laughs> yeah. So it's fun for my kids to like be really happy. It's sweet, you know, to, to experience them being kind toward me uh, in that way. Right. But now I've got something to actually look forward to. So thank you, sir. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome, buddy. It's my pleasure. Um, so anyway, uh, back to it. Underwater. Uh, the synopsis on it is, <laughs> go figure, a crew of underwater researchers uh, must scramble to safety after an earthquake devastated states their subterranean laboratory and again that seems pretty like pedestrian pretty like basic but the trailer looks freaking crazy okay so is this um like sea creatures this isn't haunted stuff no this looks more like sea creatures okay, okay. but you never see like you never get a good glimpse of the creatures Okay. Um, now, I will say this. I did watch this last night at like midnight on my phone. So maybe on a bigger screen, you get a better glimpse of them, but I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Well, hey, I'm in. I mean, you showed uh, you showed the world, at least my world, the trailer for the Gary Oldman film. Um, mm-hmm. Remind me, do you remember the title of that thing off the top of your head? Mary. Mary. So I called it in the Facebook group, uh, Event Horizon on, on a Boat. Yeah. And uh, if, if we're going to start exploring the underwater world as a source of horror, I'm totally in for that. I'm trying to think of the great like horror movies that have come from underwater scares that aren't named Jaws. And it feels like there's still some untapped potential for for that. I mean, everybody talks about how we don't know much about the ocean surface and what's really down beneath us in the water. Yeah. So bring it on, man. I, I love the Meg. I guess that's the closest thing we've had in a long time. And uh, if they can actually go scary rather than sort of campy. Can't, yeah. Well said. I'm, yeah. I'm here for that. Yeah, uh, I agree. So Kristen Stewart, T.J. Miller, and John Gallagher Jr. star in this movie, and it comes out next year, the 10th of January. Really? January? <clears throat> yep. Does that does that worry you any? It does. Okay. I, I'll be honest. Hearing T.J. Miller makes me feel like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't heard that name in a long, long time. What are the chances this is a film that they've had stuck in a box somewhere and they finally decided if they're ever going to release it, they might as well go ahead and do it? And uh, that's ex- I mean, that's exactly what happened. <sighs> okay. Well. So um, so here, here's here's the back story on it. Uh, shooting took place in the spring of 2017. Okay. Uh, but due to the Disney purchase of 20th Century Fox, the release date was pushed to January of 2020. The purchase pushed it three years. Yeah. Okay. That seems like bull crap. <laughs> that seems yeah. like an excuse, you know? Sure. Yeah, it does. Um, it's PG-13, so it's not going to be... It could be one of those things um, that we see all the time, right? Where, like, everything that's good about the movie is in the trailer. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Huh. Okay. But the, but the trailer's good. And, uh, again, I don't know if this is a movie that I'll go see in theaters, but I'll definitely track it down when it's available. Yeah, I mean, and maybe I will go see it in theaters. Right. That's, that's exactly where I was going. Like, I go watch all kinds of garbage in the theater, so I should yeah. quit pretending like 
you know, if it were like Rob Zombie or um, Eli Roth, I probably wouldn't go see it. But mm-hmm. that premise is enough that I'm going to have to feed my habit somehow. You know? Yeah. Hey, and I'll tell you what, man, uh, I'll be home around that time. So you and I can just go watch it together. Yeah, done and done. That's how yeah. that's how this thing got started. We watched a terrible, I think, exorcism movie together. And I was like, oh, yeah, me and Zoo should. <laughs> we should let the world in on this. So let's do it up. Uh, incarnate, you don't get enough love. <laughs> Actually, you know what? You get just the right amount of love. Which is virtually none. Yeah. That's how much you deserve. Everyone deserves love, but not not every film. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, again, this movie comes out on uh, excuse me, I was about to say October, January the tenth of next year, and we'll be looking forward to it from there. Uh, Jeff, I've got breaking news. Oh yes, all right. Uh, the breaking news is uh, a tweet that came out about seven hours ago from Mike Flanagan at Flanagan Film. Dr. Sleep has officially been rated R by the MPAA for disturbing and violent content, some bloody images, language, nudity, and drug use. And Flanagan comments, sounds about right. <laughs> I'm trying to think back through the the source material there. Uh, I read that last summer, I think. And none of that surprises me except the nudity stuff. I think there's one, uh, you know, interlude where the leader of the bad guys hooks up with her lieutenant or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which is not a scene I would necessarily assume ends up in the in the movie because it doesn't really... It's not necessary for the story, right? But I guess maybe they maybe they included it. Um, yeah, that sounds. I mean, I'll join Flanagan's. Not like I would contradict him anyway, but that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty excited about that. Me too, man. It, it's going to be interesting to see him do big box office. Mm-hmm. He has killed it on indie films and his Netflix work. So I'm I'm ready for this. Do you remember that movie of his uh, Before I Wake was supposed to come out in theaters? I think. Mm-hmm. And it got screwed up by distribution and whatnot. And uh, I guess that would have been the time we would see what he what he does on the big screen. And yeah. this is a redo. Yeah, uh, I'm man. I'm I'm really I'm really excited about this, and I'm I'm excited. Like just like you said, I'm excited to see uh, how he does with a, a mainstream movie like this. And um, I mean, it I seems think, set up right. I mean, he's working with a Stephen King property. Like it seems like the there's a runway. Yeah, but I think I spoke over you. What were you saying? Oh, I was just going to say. I wonder if um, since he did such a great job with Gerald's Game, if they weren't like kicking themselves for not putting Gerald's Game in theaters. Sure, sure, that makes sense. But uh, you know, hey, <laughs> Doctor Sleep being your first like mainstream movie in a while, that's not a bad idea either. No, it's not. And I guess, I guess, as a fan of Flanagan's work. We know that he can deliver on over-the-top streaming and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said just a second ago, it seems like there's a runway for this to be huge. It's connected not just to not just to Stephen King, but to The Shining, which is going to bring fans in, I assume. He can always go back to doing Netflix stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And horror fans are going to find it, and we're going to love it. But uh, it would be nice. It, it, it's like watching, you know, it's it's a common metaphor, but your hipster band, you know, the bands you were in on before anybody else knew about them? John Mayer. Okay. And he blows up, and there's two ways to handle that. There's the, the gatekeeping way of like, yeah, whatever, they're... Their new stuff isn't nearly as good as their old. Or there's the way to be like, yeah, I'm really excited. Other people are getting to enjoy the same thing, and I'm glad the artist is having success. And I'm definitely going to opt into that second choice here with Flanagan. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we talked last week about Andre Overdahl and how 
uh, he kind of lost a little bit of favorite points with us with uh, the scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, I'm I'm really hoping that this isn't Flanagan's scary stories to tell in the dark, just because the original source material is so coveted and so cherished by so many people. Sure. I'm just afraid that with this being the sequel to that, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of expectations that people are going to set that he may not be able to clear. And just because like they're too high of expectations, not yeah. not doubting any of his skill or expertise. Just I don't know, man. I'm just I, I don't want to say that I'm not that I don't trust Mike Flanagan or anything like that. It's just I'm just very worried about this one. So instead of a runway, you see a mountain to climb over. I, I mean, that I, makes sense. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. Uh, and, and I hope, uh, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that I have no doubt in his ability. And I think that the movie will be great. I'm just I'm worried about I'm not worried about our fan base. You know, yeah. I'm worried about the mass public that are going to go see this and be like, well, this ain't the shining. Well, yeah, no doubt. It's not the shining. Like, it's completely different. But give it a chance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I subscribe to the idea that past performance is the best indicator of future, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about big box office. He, I just looked at uh, box office mojo. Oculus did 20, almost 28 million in its domestic gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was April 11th, 2014. So that's not exactly a time when people are like primed to want to go see a horror movie. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, that's the time when they release those bad knockoff Christian movies to try to catch the Easter crowd. <laughs> Yeah. So, I don't know. Here's to hope, right? If he did 28 million on a property released in the middle of nowhere, uh, schedule-wise, anyway, uh, maybe he's maybe he's going to take the advantages of all this stuff and run with it. Maybe, I don't know. Here's the horror uncle, but I'm just hoping that. I'm hoping that the elements you've described are force multipliers rather than hindrances. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I even hate putting like that negative stuff out in the world. But ever since I've heard this, I've been I've had a combination of giddiness and trepidation. Yeah. And not and not trepidation again, not trepidation for Mike Flanagan, just trepidation for how the general public is going to feel about this movie. Because unfortunately, if it were just if it were up to us, you know, we're going to fanboy out. It's going to be great. But if for some reason. And it's not what the general public thinks that the sequel to The Shining should be. Then he's in for he's in for a, a difficult road. And I don't want that for him. Well, I, I although do think- I, I, I'm sorry to talk over you, uh, I, I would just although maybe if he gets knocked down a peg or two, he'll come on the show. So maybe that's what we should be. Rooting there we for. go. Are we oh, we're conflicted in our rooting interests at this point? We are. Um, the the thing I was going to say is I, there is an element with the source material that I do think is kind of a barrier, or at least potentially a barrier. Mm-hmm. And I, just the slightest spoilers possible for for Doctor Sleep is that what that story records about Danny since we last saw him in The Shining is not what I would have hoped for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's all I want to say about it. I do think if if people have just left The Shining and they realize, oh, oh, this has got some connection, and they think back to the little fresh-faced kid that they, you know, they were scared for, that may be a bit of a bummer when they first see it. Uh, I don't think yeah. it's... I don't think it's going to kill the project, but I guess it will be a, a hurdle to jump for nostalgic fans who just want to see something good. Yeah. I just hope that nobody thinks that Mike Flanagan's trying to Ryan Johnson uh, 
Danny. Yeah, that's the that's the exact perfect comparison. Well done, sir. Like to turn Luke Skywalker into uh, a nothing burger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Danny's story in Doctor Sleep is really compelling. Again, I'm trying to stay away from any kind of spoilers. So again, I don't think it's a it's a hurdle that's too high to clear. It just it may be the initial uh, discouragement that you're talking about. Yeah, the shock of it all. Yeah, yeah. Because I'll be honest with you, it was for me when I started reading the book. Yeah, yeah. Me too. That's why I thought of it. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of bummed out. Yeah, you you wanted something better for him for uh-huh. sure. Um, all right. Um, well, hey, before we well, move I didn't on, mean to. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just because I can talk about Flanagan stuff forever. Are there any of his films or series that would have gotten an R rating if they'd been released to uh, released a theater? Um, I mean, do you think Gerald's Game just because of the degloving? Yeah, it was listed as MA. I thought also, too, the sexual elements. I don't know how the MPAA thinks through that stuff. Yeah. It's a candidate. I think Hush officially got an R rating, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't a major property, basically. Uh, Which is a friggin' shame, man. I still yeah. think that's probably my favorite thing he's done. Like, I I like Hill House a lot, but, man, Hush was what really sent me over the edge for that guy. Sure. And it, it really rejuvenated the slasher genre for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it did, Jeff. You're right. It did receive an R rating. Yeah. I don't know. There's just some elements there, like working with an existing property, which he did with Gerald's Game, working in the R rating, which he did with Hush, uh, but having a big, major, you know, marketing push behind him. This is going to be an interesting moment for Mike Flanagan. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most yeah. non-committal thing I could say, right? But for people who've followed his career, this is this is high theater, high drama. Yeah, it's going to be good, man. Yeah. I'm, 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 uh, I'm really interested. I'm, I'm excited to see Mike Flanagan's work on a big level like this. To see, like, to for people to be able to see and enjoy it. And I'm hoping that with the uh, the buzz that Hill House got. I'm hoping that that helps it. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, oh, that's the dude that did Hill House. I love Hill House. Let's yeah. let's watch this. Yeah. So I'm with you now. I don't want to just stay here forever, but I guess I I'm channeling I'm channeling my friendship with Derek Zoo and saying this could also be his Shyamalan moment where you know <laughs> too yeah. many resources. Yeah. And, and and that's another thing that I worry about. Like, I again, I I think that Mike Flanagan is. I don't want to say genius, but I, I think he's very talented. And I think he's really good at what he does. I think more so than M. Night ever sure. thought to be. Sure. So I'm hoping that that Shyamalan curse doesn't pop up with him. Um, me too. But in that same vein, like you could say Andre Overdahl had that problem with Scary Stories Tell in the Dark. Yeah. So I don't know, man. Uh, there's a lot of variables. I just think that as far as our fandom goes and stuff, we'll just we'll keep everything we'll keep everything positive. Even though I've I haven't I've put a lot of doubt in the world, <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll try to keep everything positive and we'll we'll hope for the best. Yeah. Well, when I said the Shyamalan thing, I heard Michael Clark Duncan say, "Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby." Yeah. So uh, maybe the cosmos is invading my conscience. My conscience, my consciousness. How about that instead? Or both. Or both. Okay. Yeah. Kill it, Mike Flanagan. Yeah. We're ready for it. For sure, man. I'm pumped about it. Uh, so that's that's it for the late breaking news. Is there, um, is there anything else we need to talk about? Uh, I don't guess so. So you ready to, ready to do the thing? Yeah, man. Let's get ready for... This week's...
And uh, I got some good stuff to throw at you this week, man. Um, before we get into the horror stuff, though, mm-hmm. can we talk about a horrific decision that Sony and Disney are making? It may, okay, so I don't know if I can say if I can comment on this without saying the f word, but I'm gonna try really hard. Uh, I'm livid about this. Yeah, yeah. I think you are our collective representative on that. And I say our, I mean like everybody who likes fun movies. Yeah, it's just. Well, anyway, tell tell the listeners what's going on if for some reason they live under a rock and or aren't geeks like us. Yeah, so Sony and Disney have apparently had a falling out over Spider-Man. Uh, a falling out that is so pronounced that as things stand right now, I think the expectation is that we will get no more of Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Uh, that, that oh, oh, uh, I'm sorry, I just need to cut in, I guess. I read today, well, I rumored innuendo, Tom Holland has a two-picture deal left with Sony. Okay. Which doesn't make sense to me because I'm pretty sure Marvel hired him. Yeah. But um, that is the that is the current rumored innuendo. Okay. Okay. Well, regardless, I mean, if you know if you know the backstory of the Spider-Man cinematic universe, they had a pretty good run with the first two Tobey Maguire movies, and that would have been the late '90s, right? Or is that early 2000s? <laughs> That's early 2000s. 2002, 2004. Okay. Then things fell off a cliff in uh, Spider-Man Three, mm. and they were never able to get their fastball back. So. So they they had the Andrew Garfield movies. Both of those Ugh. were huge disappointments. And about the same time as they were screwing the pooch on that, uh, the MCU took off like a rocket ship. And really, you can't have a Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, you know, operating at full powers without Spider Man. He's the face of that publishing house, and you got to have him in the movie. So eventually, they worked out uh, an agreement. Sony and Disney did to to bring Spider Man into the MCU and basically share financial interest in it. Mm-hmm. But that has broken down. And I don't know what you, I've been trying to read on this. I have read that it is as petty as will Kevin Feige get a, a production credit. I have read that it's as important as who puts the upfront money up for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really and truly, I don't know. I don't know where the truth lies in this because, again, I've read multiple different uh, summaries of what the breakdown is is around. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I've read uh, the the first thing I read was there's a money discrepancy where um, Disney was mm, Disney felt like they weren't being compensated well enough and asked to do a 50 50 split. Sony balked at that and said no. And so then Disney was like, "Okay, cool, then we'll just pull, you know, we'll just pull Spidey out of out of our plans and have fun. Uh, Which just interject the MCU has been very willing to do. Um, you know, they've, they, they have built a universe without the X-Men, which if you're just a comics fan, you would have thought is impossible. Uh, and they, they haven't really, uh, I mean, there's nothing good that's come out of the fantastic four universe in the current MCU. And so they have, you know, they've left a lot of stuff on the table, not just the fantastic four, but Dr. Doom, silver surfer, uh, galactic, there's a lot there that they've they've managed to build up you know an empire without those major elements and I suppose I suppose they mean it when they say we can we can keep going without Spider-Man yeah um, it, it's it's it sucks like there's really no other way to put it if if this is how this whole thing goes around uh, then Tony Stark died in vain and I'm really pissed off that's a good point I hadn't thought about the narrative implications in that way 
Well, here's another one of those cases, man, where there's no good guys. Do I right. write, you know, am I rooting for mega conglomeration Disney or mega conglomeration Sony? You know, they're both soulless corporate entities who are there. The, the analogy I gave a friend of mine uh, on Facebook is that they have a license to print money mm-hmm. with the Spider-Man movies they're making. You know, the, the first one, I think, made 800 something million and the uh, Far From Home made a billion. Yeah. And they're arguing about what sticker goes on the printer or who buys the printer. Printer. You right. know what I mean? Like, would you not love to have these problems? Yes. And yet, apparently, it's big enough that uh, it's just big enough that, that this might actually jeopardize what looks like a future megastar in a definitive role. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, this is this is what everybody in Hollywood wants. They want a Tom Holland caught young, and they want a guaranteed vehicle for him. And mm-hmm. Sony and Marvel are about to throw it away. Yeah, so... Uh, again, uh, rumor and innuendo. I had read several weeks ago that Kevin Feige had planned to do a three trilogy series with Tom Holland Spider-Man. Uh, the the thing was he wanted to do um, he wanted to do three three movies with Peter in high school, three movies with Peter in college, and three movies with Peter as an adult. And now. Which I think is awesome, and you've got the perfect actor to to do that with. But now. All that's in jeopardy over – I mean I, I get wanting to be compensated, right? Yeah. And, and clearly clearly Disney is the reason – like Marvel and, and Disney, you know, they're one and the same anymore. But they're the reason why um, those movies have done so well. Sure. Right? You slap the Marvel name on it. You you put a good – you put good actors and good, you know, good storytelling and stuff in. You're going to make good money. Well, and credit to Feige. Feige seems to be the guy who knows the recipe. Yeah. You know, so like he, he should be acknowledged. Um, but what you're saying is absolutely right on. Like they have the they have the secret formula and we're all here for for more doses. Yeah. And I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I said it on the uh, on the pop culture quorum Deo power hour. Um, <laughs> if you know, it seems like Sony's just trying to trying to get bought out by Marvel like this. This is their bid to have Disney buy them. You know, that is the most insightful speculation I've seen on the whole thing. Um, I read that right before I went to Slumberland last night and I thought, yeah, Derek nailed it. Maybe that's what Sony wants. Maybe Sony wants to be out of movie making mm-hmm. and wants to focus on hardware and stuff, uh, you know, to, to put movies and video games on. I guess this is one way to get Disney to buy you. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I, if that's not what they're going for, I think they're really playing fast and loose with their future because they're going to be the ones who take the L on this. Uh, movie-going fans have already come to be delighted by Spider-Man and the MCU. And like you mm-hmm. mentioned, we, we already have hopes hung on him narratively. Sony will be seen as pulling him out. And, you know, if the if the, the young ladies I teach at the school I teach at are any indication uh, in their fandom for Tom Holland, they're going to resent Sony very much. And so you're going to have mm-hmm. this whole spectrum of people like, I mean, I don't know how high the MCU fan demographic goes, but we're talking about probably people in their 50s who are big fans. Mm-hmm. All the way down to young teenage girls are going to look at Sony as the you know the the, the company that canceled Christmas. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, a friend of the show, uh, Shauna, is is uh, my age. She's thirty three, and she was the first person I heard talk about it, and she was living. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it's not just. I mean, this is this is something for all ages, right? Sure. And and we've all been waiting on a time to see like the definitive Spider Man. Yep. And we finally got him, and now we're pooping the bed. Yeah. 
And you uh, you posted this. Uh, there's indications that this is already starting to hurt Sony's stock prices, mm-hmm. uh, which is I think it, I think it's indicative of how this is already starting to break. And I really think if I'm a Sony exec, I'm going to take a long hard look and say, is it better to make you know 50 percent of something or 100 percent of very little? Right. And and I, what I think is probably in Sony's head is that they they really crushed it with the. Uh, uh, the Spider-Verse animated film. Mm-hmm. They really did. And they did. Yeah. And what I would just say back to them is, actually, Marvel's cinematic stuff has not been very good when it goes animated. I don't right. know if you watch any of those, but they just... DC has had some success with animated movies, but Marvel hasn't. If I'm Sony, I'm just talking to Marvel being like, can we handle most of the animated stuff with Spider-Man? We're going to try to build a Spider-Verse franchise. We're going to feature Miles Morales. And we'll continue in some amicable partnership like you've proposed with the live action stuff. Mm-hmm. Let Marvel make you money with the live action stuff and you put all your creative eggs in the uh, the animated world and guys, go make money. Yeah. This this just seems like too much of a of a pride contest, and I think they're fools. Yeah, I agree, man. It just seems like it does. It just seems like it's too much for pride contest. And uh, I you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, are you willing to make a hundred or excuse me, fifty percent of a lot of money, or do you want to make a hundred percent of nothing? And ultimately, I mean, I think if you put a Spider-Man movie out there, people are going to go see it, especially if Tom Holland's in it. But I don't know that it does billion dollar numbers like Far From Home did without the Marvel machine behind it. Sure. I mean, we had we had Nick Fury. We had, uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal sign up to to Mm -hmm. get his foot in the universe. Obviously, Downey and Iron Man like. If Sony sees this as them getting to cash out on all the stuff the MCU has invested, I think they're going to be really surprised how the obvious pettiness of that comes back to bite them. I already had a guy who, uh, you know, is a comic book movie fan. He said, I just won't watch another Spider-Man movie if they do this. I just won't reward this behavior. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who say that and go see it. But I think there's also going to be a lot of people who are going to treat it like the Andrew Garfield stuff and say, whatever, man, I'm just tired of this. Yeah. And and honestly, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, well, the the only way, the only way that I'm gonna go watch Spider Man now is if we get that Venom crossover, because I loved Tom Hardy playing Venom, and I would like to see Tom Hardy and Tom Holland try to overact each other. But besides that, I just. I, I don't want to reward. I'm, I'm just like your friend. I don't want to reward this kind of behavior. I don't think you'll be alone. And yeah. uh, I think Sony, I mean, they're not going to listen to to Jeff Wright, but I think it's pretty obvious how this is going to go down if they if they press on and it's not going to go well. So do better, Sony. Damn. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Who who wants Disney throwing their weight around on top of you, particularly when you represent a major corporation already? Uh, but if you like money, how about you just go ahead and keep making money? Yeah. I think we've exhausted all of our hatred for this Sony Disney thing. So let's uh, let's move into some some other stuff. We've got we still got horror reporter stuff to talk about, don't we? Yeah, yeah, and there's and there's good stuff. So we'll we'll try to move through it fairly quickly. Uh, not too long ago, you and I were asking the question uh, if if you know clearly we're living in a in a at least a golden age or a silver age of of horror movies right now. Are You're we welcome. also in the golden age of horror video games? Yes. And so we have more evidence to submit that maybe we are. Uh, are you familiar with the Dead by Daylight game franchise? 
Um, uh, to an extent, yes. So they've done some stuff with uh, Freddy Krueger uh, in the past, and they've also had Ghostface from the Scream franchise. Uh, listener, if you're not familiar with this, Dead by Daylight is this game where basically four people play against one, and the bad guy is the one, and he gets like incredible powers, and then the other people try to either get away or you know thwart him in some some fashion. Um, well, we just found out Stranger Things is coming to Dead by Daylight. Okay. So the Demogorgon will be the killer in this one. And then they're going to include Nancy Wheeler and Steve Harrington as the uh, protagonists. And I'm assuming we'll get maybe some more because I think, like I said, it's a four player versus one setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, the, I watched the trailer today and it looks really good. And it, you know, if you've ever wanted to live in the stranger things universe, you got a chance here. Cool, man. Yeah. I was That's quite awesome. delighted. Yeah. Hey, speaking of video games, I don't know if we've talked about this or not, but there's a Blair Witch video game. We did. I think we talked, you talked about that on an episode with Jason, I think okay. uh, when I was on the sideline. That's right. Um, I've done a lot of podcasts lately. Uh, so, so that, uh, three, I think, no, excuse me, two new trailers dropped for that yesterday and that comes out next week. Oh man. So, uh, that comes out on Xbox one and PC. So unfortunately I will not be able to play that. But if, for those of you that are, uh, you should, and uh, you should also look for those trailers because I watched one of uh, I watched all my trailers last night around midnight, and uh, I watched those and kind of got a little tingle. Maybe it was because you know my room was pitch black and I was on my phone, but it was a little little fright there. So. Yeah. Well, I- I'll tell you this. Now, I know I haven't made it out to Missouri since you've been out there, but if you happen to find yourself back in Middle Tennessee with some time, mm-hmm. I will take the responsibility of borrowing an Xbox One from someone so we can sit in a dark room and try out the Blair Witch game. Okay, we'll uh, we'll make that happen. And uh, in September, this new Dead by Daylight uh, Stranger Things update hits too, so maybe we could try both. It's coming to PC and consoles. So yes, maybe we can do be both. Great. Hey, before we leave, just a spoiler for later in the episode. Uh, in speaking of of Jason. Uh, you guys need to hang around for the end of the episode to hear some exciting news on the podcast front for Jason. Yeah, for sure. We're uh, we're excited to have a cousin podcast, sister podcast. I don't know, yeah. one or the other. But yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. Uh, next, good news. And I actually don't know. I try to do this in increasing order, like stuff I'm more and more excited about. Yeah. If it wasn't clear what I meant by increasing order. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if this is the best or the second best. So I pick second. You tell me. Uh, chapter two, Mushietti, uh It. Muschietti is working on a supercut that will have It Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 together. I just feel like Barney Gumble from The Simpsons, right? Just hook it to my veins. <laughs> so he told SFX Magazine that there's a version of the films where the two movies are cut together. He also said there's a version where there's a special director's cut of number one and mm. a special director's cut of number two. And I'm happy to basically work on every one of them. Derek, here's where I'm at, buddy. Why is this a question? Yeah. Give me every version. Uh, so no news yet on whether all three will be bundled into a home release. So the, 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 the people I got this from is Games Radar, surprisingly enough, a writer named Bradley Russell. He said we're almost guaranteed to get the longer it chapter two down the line, uh, according to Muschietti. And the runtime on chapter two for the theatrical release is already 165 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muschietti told him chapter two's director's cut was around four hours. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be working on a director's cut to be released, which is based on that director's cut. You know, we heard about all this stuff with chapter one as well. There was a longer director's cut. Mm-hmm. I get that this is how you do it now in home releases. That's you. Uh, you know, you're always releasing the next cut. 
But man, Frig, we should have gotten we should have gotten the director's cut for chapter one released before chapter two came out. Yeah, I'm kind of frustrated. I don't already have access to this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so let me pitch this idea to you, or, or let me just start with some questions. You're going to yes, watch either director's cut or both, right? Uh-huh. You would watch a super cut of both put together. Oh, yes. Okay. What time length it movie would you feel like was too much? <sighs> so we've got a four-hour mark for the chapter two director's cut. Let's just assume chapter one is three to four. We're looking at seven to eight hours. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the starting point. Mm-hmm. Man, that might be it. It's seven, eight hours you'd call uncle. Yeah. I was thinking over it, and I think this is, I think I'm in up until about nine hours. Yeah. If it's an entire day experience, I think I would do that. If it goes beyond like a workday length, um, that may be where I, where I cry uncle. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's probably the, the tipping point. You know, uh, <laughs> wrestling fans joke nowadays about how WrestleMania is like a two day thing. Uh, and it was this year, you know, it started at like three o'clock in the afternoon and it ended at midnight. Um, yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of dairy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or, well, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think you need to cap it at like seven hours, but even then, like I'm going to have to take a lot of bathroom breaks, like sure. get up and stretch. And I don't think I can just sit there and watch something for seven hours without. <sighs> yeah, that's mm. if the whole thing were four, I think that would be the, for the best. Yeah. You know, yeah. but um, yeah, once you get into like five, six, seven hours, that's that's, that's going to be long. rough. That's a long. Yeah. I mean, that's you might as well just clock in and get paid for it. Well, what I would say is I'd like to see somebody experiment with it. And I'd specifically like to see them do it with this film. Mm-hmm. It seems custom fit for two audiences in my mind. One home release. Right. Because at home I can hit pause, get up and get more nachos or whatever. But then, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who initially suggested this, but in our Facebook group, someone said that sounds like something Alamo Drafthouse would do. Yep. And it does seem to me like a a definitive Alamo move to say, we're going to let the menu stay at your fingertips, right? Uh, You sit down in our comfy chairs when you're ready for another soda or whatever, hit the button and we'll bring you some food. I mean, they have all the infrastructure set up to do this. And I really want to see somebody try it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 down, uh, especially at a Alamo Draft House. Yeah, I'm I would be if there was one close by, but I'm definitely happy to let it happen at the uh, Fortress Wright. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think Mrs. Wright will uh, just be your serve your server though? I think when I tell her what I'm going to do with my day, her eyes may roll back far enough in her head to see her brain. <laughs> Uh, but we're married. She can't get away. I would That's true. do it. That's true. You're legally bounded. Yeah. There's a covenant oh. here, woman. <laughs> this, this is the for worse that we talked about on our wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she just didn't realize. She just didn't realize it was going to take this long to kick in. Yeah. She's like, I was happy to, to deal with like potential cancer or something like that. <laughs> an eight hour horror movie. This is <laughs> this is a cancer that knows no end. <laughs> Bring it on. Let's at least try. Let's let's see how how uh, how much endurance the horror community has. Uh, somebody needs to pull the trigger as an experiment, and I think Muschietti's it is the perfect candidate. Yeah, I agree. Uh, speaking of options to uh, <laughs> to test endurance among the horror fans, we're also for sure getting an extended director's cut of Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. Okay. So I think this is fairly fresh news. Amblin tweeted this a handful of hours ago as we're recording. 
Uh, they they have pre-orders up on Amazon for the Blu-ray release of The Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. There's no price attached yet, but the the cover image has the the red sticker at top up top that says extended uh, director's cut. So I have no idea how long the additional material is going to make the series. I don't even know what it's going to cost to buy the thing. But am I going to click pre-order? Yeah, I'm going to click pre-order. Yeah, 100%. And uh, listeners, if you if you want to track that down, uh, you know, the easiest, I will, I'll drop a link to that bad boy in our Facebook group when the, when the episode's over. Yeah, please do that because I definitely want to pre-order that right now. And again, I'm going to do it without knowing what the price is, but I'm all about it. Yeah. Well, buddy, that has brought us uh, to the end. This has been this week's You want to do the honors? This is kind of your movie, man. Yeah, man. Let's pull the string on 1986's The Fly. So I have never seen this before. I think we've talked about that before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I realize that's a super weird reality for me. Um, I don't know why I didn't see it. I'm really thankful you pushed me to watch it. So Good. this is the 33rd anniversary of the movie's release. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, 33rd anniversary. It's just really this. rare for me to get exposed to a classic that deserves the title at this stage in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was such a, del- you know, again, it was a it was a delightful experience to kind of catch up to where everybody else has been for 33 years. Uh, man, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Uh, so, yeah, this movie came out on August the 15th, 1986. Um, um, and I was telling telling Jeff before we – well, uh, no, we started. Yeah, <laughs> this part of the recording. <laughs> We've been, been talking for a while. For a while. Yeah. Uh, this really set me into my horror movie fandom. I watched this movie, <laughs> which I shouldn't have, but I watched this movie when I was like three or four years old. It's one of the very first movies I remember sitting down to watch. And it's amazing the things that you can remember. But I was in a trailer in Smithville, Tennessee – um, actually it wasn't, it wasn't all the way in Smithville, Jeff, you and I, and like th- three other people are going to understand this, but I just want you to understand the context. You know, when you're going from Sparta to, uh, to Smithville and you're on, what is it? 70? Yep. That's it. Yeah. So you're on, you're on uh highway 70 and there's this little church past like the rock cut. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I know specifically on because the, friend right. of the podcast, Jared Moore's family grew up in that church. Okay. So, um, at that church behind it. It used to be a trailer, and my mother and I lived in that trailer for like six months with some friends. Uh, and so we, uh, I remember very specifically watching that movie in that trailer uh, for the first time at like three or four, and probably pooping my pants because it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, I have a three year old right now, and I think I think she would be in therapy. Yeah, um, I'm just a stand up comic, so. <laughs> It's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> well played, sir. Uh, but it did. It, 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 it terrified me. And it, it's one of those things that is just it stuck with me for the longest time. I remember that there was a guy who came to the trailer one day who looked like Jeff Goldblum. And I was like, oh, God, there's the fly. I'm dead. Like, I just ex- expected him to vomit that <laughs> acidic stuff on me and kill, you know, and, you know, and kill me at three or four years old. I mean, I'm laughing now. I'm <laughs> That's horrifying for a little kid. You know what I mean? Like, if it was my yeah. daughter, I would be brokenhearted for her. But you survived it, so I guess we can laugh about it. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. It's fine. So uh, I haven't – I probably haven't watched this thing in, like, 10 years, 10 or 15 years. Um, I, I love it, but it's just not one of those movies where I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch The Fly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so rewatching it this week in preparation for this 
podcast, the first thing I thought was, oh, God, Jeff's going to think this is his event horizon, right? Like, I could just imagine you watching it, laughing at, like, all the cheesy effects and, uh, you know, the puppetry and stuff that was going on towards the end of the movie. So it did my heart really good to hear you say, hey, man, I really enjoyed this movie because I was I was really afraid that you were going to be like, what the crap did you see in this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I, it may be the horror uncle in me, but... I was really charmed by this movie, as weird as that sounds. Uh, and, and you're right. This isn't the kind of movie that I should like. We I'm well documented in how I don't like gore. Uh, right. And this is a very gory movie. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. Everything about this movie worked for me. And, and I now kind of set it beside The Thing as one of my favorite you know, practical effect horror movies. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome. And, and yeah. again, to my wife, who is no fan of horror movies, she said, I'll watch that with you. So we watched it together. And like the next day, so we went, you know, we watched it. We talked it over. The next day, we put the kids to bed. We've got some chores that we're wrapping up. And she's like, hey, let's talk about the fly some more. And so uh, I think it really grabbed both of us in our imagination. Good. Yeah. That's, that's great to hear because even rewatching it uh, this time around, I was like, man, this this thing just holds up. Like, it's just a really, really fun. Well, I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's just it's a great movie. I get what you're saying, dude. I I had fun with this movie. I don't I don't know how to really explain that, but I really had a fun time with the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you I don't know if you expect it or not, but it, it is. It's really good. And, you know, the thing is, is like how many times have you heard the expression? Be afraid. Be very afraid. Yes, I had no idea that came from this movie. Yeah. And 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 Gina Davis delivers it so deadpan that I almost missed it. Yeah. Uh but anyway, it sure has rooted in our collective, you know, uh nightmare. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, so just uh, a few small pieces of trivia that I wanted to kind of get out of the way before, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more about it. But did you know that Mel Brooks was a producer on this film? Only after I started reading the, you know, analysis material. Uh, yeah, that is that is not someone's name I expected to have associated with this film. Yeah, he tried to keep, you know, he tried to keep his name away from it because he was afraid that people think it was a satire or a comedy. And uh, only after the premiere, I think, did he start, you know, really trying to tell the world that he was, you know, that he was a part of it. I think actually he maybe I think I read somewhere at the premiere he was passing out like blooper reels. Huh. Yeah, he, he was handing out. Yeah, or no, I'm sorry, he was handing out uh, dealy boppers. I'm not even sure what those are. Well, now I want to know. I got to know what a dealy bopper is. If Mel Brooks gonna, handed it out, I think I should have one. I'm gonna give it a goog real quick. Oh, it's those little like those little things that you put on your head that make you look like an, an insect. Gotcha. <laughs> that's that's right on brand for old Mel Brooks. Yeah. Yeah, I just never knew that those were called Dealey Boppers. Me either. Dealey Boppers, not Boppers. I'm saying it wrong. Sorry. Oh, no. Sometimes it is Boppers. Okay. <laughs> Good Lord. Here's your novelty toy uh, analysis that, that you've come to expect from Sauce on the Scary. <laughs> Uh, so there were some other scenes in this movie that uh, were filmed, but were ultimately taken out. Uh, there's a there's a very infamous scene where Brundlefly fuses a cat and the remaining baboon together. Yeah, and then just beats it to death with a lead pipe. So that is available on YouTube. If anybody wants okay. to go track that down and hasn't seen it, it's in some of the special uh, edition releases, I guess, of Blu-rays or whatever on this. But it's also on YouTube. I found it. Yeah, and I think. Rightfully, the producers took it out because at that point, there's no going back for Seth. Yeah, you're you're totally unsympathetic to him, right? Yeah. I Although, mean, in fairness, 
I don't know what he could have done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, if right. you're trying to like straighten this stuff out, figure out how to get yourself healed, which everybody in that situation is going to be trying to figure out how to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you may run some animal tests. We've already seen him testing on animals. Uh, he he turned a monkey inside out at one point. Um, <laughs> which, by the Did way, you expect that? I guess I should have asked for uh, for a friend Wahlberg early on. Or, or do we just say it's a 33-year-old movie? And Yeah, dude. I think it's a 33-year-old movie. I mean, if if you haven't seen it by now, then I tell you what, if you haven't seen this movie by now, drop everything you're doing and go watch it. Sure. It's like, it's like $3 on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's well worth the investment. Go watch it and then come back and listen to the rest of this thing. Like, I don't, I don't really feel like a Wahlberg situation is needed for this when it's, when this movie's as old as I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, anyway, just, I, I think that I follow the logic of cutting that, that scene out. But again, everybody's going to be trying to do whatever they can to get themselves healed Mm -hmm. uh he's already shown himself willing to test animals and he you know he turned one inside out uh in the context of the character and the moment of his uh, arc there, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty understandable move. And if you create that kind of thing, you've got to put it down. It's obviously in misery, right? So sure. I, I, I don't know if we if we take a hard analytical look at it, if it should really change the way we think of Seth Brundle. But I, I get why the original uh, crafters of the film thought it would. Yeah, I mean, I think that their point of view was is when you when you kill an animal with a lead pipe, regardless if it's a hybrid cat baboon or whatnot, like. Most of your most of your fan base are going to turn on you. Sure, uh, no argument here. I just I don't know. I guess I'm just sympathetic to the to the Brundle fly there in that moment. What else can he do? You know? Right now, did you know that this was a remake of the 1958 movie starring Vincent Price? Uh, also, something I did not know, and something I went and tracked down on YouTube. I didn't watch the whole movie, but I watched several different clips from it. Mm-hmm. And there is a an alternative ending to to the original from 58 or whatever that I think everybody listening to this podcast should go look. It's uh t- should go look up. So look for the alternative ending to the 1958 fly on YouTube, and you can thank me later. Okay. Uh, I think the... The, the deal with the 58, did you watch that movie or look into it much? Uh, I don't want to explain I, I, all this if you have. Uh, I saw a little bit of it, but go ahead and uh, go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, it's it's classic like 50s and 60s sci-fi. So if that's your jam, I think it would probably be an enjoyable watch. It kind of cemented Vincent Price as a horror actor. Mm-hmm. And so like it's historically significant. But in... Uh, in the in the fifty eight version, is it right? Did you say fifty eight? Fifty eight, yes. Um, it, there there's some significant differences. It's a married couple who uh, experiences the events uh, that transform the man into a fly, and it's much more of a an immediate thing. So the the guy he he swaps basically his head with a fly's and his left arm with a fly. So there's mm-hmm. a man with this big fly head and a left arm, and then there's somewhere there's a fly out there with a human head and a human left arm Mm -hmm. and you know the the movie plays out it resolves however it resolves in the alternative ending the the son of the couple who experienced these things comes rushing in and asks vincent price's character to come out in the backyard because he's found this really odd looking fly and there's this huge spider web and a uh a strange looking fly is caught in the middle and a spider is coming toward it to eat it and that's really all I want to tell you if you haven't seen it, because I really think you need to go watch the watch the clip. It's delightful. Okay. Well, there's your homework for the week, kids. For sure. Go uh, go check that out. Man, do you think this is peak Jeff Goldblum? 
Well, that is, you know, I'm trying to think through what appealed to this movie, uh, appealed about this movie to me. I really think it's mostly him. So I've got some thoughts on the on the Goldblum uh, element. Mm-hmm. And I've got, a, you know, just to answer your question, this is, if it's not peak, it's classic. You know what I mean? Like, it's the version that everybody got addicted to. Yeah. Um, but let me throw some other thoughts at you, okay? Okay. You know, we've talked about this on previous episodes. There's a certain kind of elite actor who gets into character and becomes a different person. So mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis is an example of this. Uh, who are the other, like, method actors that you think of? So I would I would even say that people like Jim Carrey have turned into oh. some, you know, method actors like that. Um, Robert De Niro, Anthony Hopkins. Um... I don't know. I mean, Pacino probably like Meryl Streep. Um, you know, those are those are the first few that come to mind. All right, so that's an elite tier. Yeah, there's another elite tier though that is just the same person playing whatever name they've been assigned by the by the script. Dwayne Johnson. Okay, so Dwayne Johnson, uh, Denzel. Yeah, uh, Robin Williams. Ah. Uh- to an extent, I feel like Robin Williams had some good acting chops. Did you ever see One Hour Photo? Yeah, that's a good that's a good call. He really did go in a different direction with with One Hour Photo. Yeah, um, that's a good creep. So we'll you know maybe maybe not with him, but again, pretty elite actors. I think Mel Gibson is a version of this too. I know that he's persona non grata, but as an actor, he's delivered some really memorable roles over the year. Over the years, you know, you drop them in, they're going to be the same person, just with a different name. And I think it. I think they have acting chops too. I now think Jeff Goldblum is in that second category. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the same guy he was when he was playing Malcolm in Jurassic, you know, Park. He's He's an older, spacier version in Guardians. I mean, sorry, Guardians, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, But he's, you know, it's him. Yeah. I actually think it's that element of him just being him that makes me like this movie so much and stay so caught up in it. Because his mannerisms that are so distinctly him are charming when you first meet him as an ambitious scientist, right? Right. But they become increasingly creepy as he, as his physical appearance becomes increasingly creepy through the movie. So, like, when he's doing the head twitch thing that a fly does, it's a very Jeff Goldblum move. When he does the licking his lips, it's a very Jeff Goldblum move, but it's it's deeply offsetting. Where before, those mannerisms, he didn't do a lot of head twitching, but his mannerisms are very charming. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, he's the perfect embodiment of the corrupting effects of these new fly genetics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Um it was it's such a it's such a crazy thing to watch his transformation and and, and you nailed it you're spot on like uh goldblum's very charming uh being jeff goldblum but then as he turns into the fly all these ticks and mannerisms and stuff become increasingly more not just creepy but like also more unstable mm-hmm. and uh yeah it, it, again it's it's weird to say things like that are fun to watch but it is it is super fun. The ones that stand out to me from the film that kind of lock this in are when he first loses his teeth and Gina Davis shows back up and he, you know, it's it's a very Goldblum dialogue. He's like, ah, the medicine cabinet has become the Brundle Fly Museum of Natural History. Would you like to come and see? 
Uh, and then another one where he sits down to document how he eats his food. And we only see the beginning of it. But he's like, I realized eating eating food, uh, it, you know, my teeth are useless and it hurts to digest. So the brundle fly spits up on his food and re-ingests it, you know. Mm-hmm. And we only hear the the sounds of him actually doing that. But again, that it, it's very Jeff Goldblum. And if it were him just talking through it, you know, without the physical changes, we, would, we wouldn't think a thing of it other than just the oddness of the dialogue. But in his decaying human shell, it it feels like the most unhuman thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't feel like I have anything else to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we talked about this off air. Another thing I I liked about this is this is basically a Goldblum and Gina Davis two person play. Mm hmm. You know, you bring in the creepy ex-boyfriend publisher guy as needed, but it's largely them. Hindsight being twenty twenty, this is an incredible cast. Yeah. Yeah, it really is, man. Um, I mean, you know, of course, Goldblum and Gina Davis are great. Did you know that they were dating or, or married at this point? I knew it was around this only after I looked it up. So one of the things that my wife brought up is that these are both two super tall human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess Jeff Goldblum is 6'4", and Gina Davis is six feet tall. Yeah. And so then I started, like, digging into their Wikipedia pages and saw they were married around the time. Yeah, Gina Davis also uh, five years younger, or excuse me, not five years, six days younger than my mother. Really? No kidding. Yeah, yeah she was born. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was way off. She was born January the 21st. I thought that said June 21st. So, so a couple I feel months. like I feel like an idiot. Yeah, they're about six months apart. Okay, okay. Well, we've corrected the record, sir. Yeah, we're all good. Uh, Gina's really great in this, and... Gina is an actress who does a really remarkable job of being both vulnerable and strong. Mm-hmm. She doesn't come off as someone who's unaffected by the world she lives in. Although you can tell, like particularly with that creepy publisher ex-boyfriend guy, she's been, you know, people have taken advantage of her, or at least she's had some stuff go wrong, I guess. And yet she really sells out to caring for Brundle and like being deeply invested in what's happening with him, uh, not writing him off when things go sideways. And I'm sure there are other actresses who could do this, but it's a certain category of actress who could make me make me not, you know, make me believe that she wouldn't just immediately be like, "Okay, cool. I'm really sorry. Let's never talk again. Yeah. Yeah. Which. I feel like would be my um, thought process. Or at least what you would expect. You know what I mean? Yeah. You would just expect someone you met a couple months ago at a science convention and maybe y'all hooked up. But like, there's no real attachment here. You're kind of going to tell this guy, let's get you some help. And if he says no, well, we're, we're going to need to put some distance between us as you turn into a freaking fly. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I understand that there's the attraction there. And of course, you know, they're both two beautiful people. But good night, man. I think when... Uh, I think when she comes back and sees him looking like with the walker and just looking terrible, I think that's my I think that's my cue. I'm like, <laughs> all right, bro, you uh, you look like you don't need my help anymore. So you have a good one. Yeah. You know, that's that's actually a definitive scene there uh, for her character, because I, I have the same reaction. And when you see him walking around, he's explaining what's happening. There's this like snotty looking goop that is saturating his shirt. Mm-hmm. And when he gets done talking, Gina runs over and gives him a full body hug. Yeah. And I don't know if that's, you know, Cronenberg, obviously, I'll talk to, talk to you more about him in just a second. But Cronenberg has some chops as a creator. Uh, maybe he intentionally put that in to, like, show us how big her heart was. 
Uh, or it could have been accidental, but for me, it really worked because it's kind of the leprosy thing, right? You know, nobody yeah. touches a leper yeah. because of the danger they represent. And that's not, that's a pretty close comparison to what Brundle's going through. Yet she reaches out and embraces him. It's, it's all things considered fairly moving. Yeah. You know, there, there was a lot of people that thought that this was a, a movie that was thinly, thinly veiling or thinly veiled references to AIDS, mm-hmm. what Brundle was going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cronenberg has since denied that, but. You can kind of see in that scenario as well, like, uh, you know, especially in the 80s and in the, in the mid 80s. I mean, age was the it was the thing that everyone was afraid of. And so if you see somebody that all of a sudden goes from being young and viral and in the best shape of their life to decrepit and, and sickly and, and things, the, the last thing you probably wanted to do in the 80s was give them a hug. So you're probably right. That that really was probably trying to show like Veronica's love and affection for Seth. Um, but also go ahead. Well, I just was going to say that I I knew there was this reference to A's, but you've helped me connect it there. Um, there's a time when I think Gina's character takes footage of the, of Brundle becoming the fly back to, do you say his name Stathis, the the publisher guy? I, I believe so. And, He's the, like the first thing he tells her is you have to stay away. He might be contagious. Yeah. And that is what, you know, I was young when the AIDS epidemic broke out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Magic Johnson coming out as HIV positive was a big moment for me. And there was major controversy in the NBA because people were saying, I don't know if I can be on the court with him. I don't know how this disease spreads. Right. And so Carl Malone was another all-star. And he's like, I, I'm not going to play with him because if if it's body fluid that transmits it, you know, can it be transmitted through sweat? What if it gets, you know, busted open? And, uh you know, we've we've since come to see that as, uh, you know, crazy. But at the time, nobody knew. And like you said, all we knew is that it just took people so quickly from physical prime to just decimated. And so even being quite happy we've learned more about that disease, I get how people would see this as a metaphor because it was terrifying and you didn't know how to... You didn't know how to safely yet compassionately relate to those who were afflicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think Cronenberg has said he actually saw it as a metaphor for aging, I think. I believe so. Which I think works too, man. Uh, we we have a weird relationship to old people in our culture. Mm-hmm. And over a more prolonged period of time, but it kind of does the same things we're talking about here, right? It takes us from vitality to uh, decrepitude or diminished physical status or stature, Uh We've reviewed some movies that are built on the idea the the uh, the taking of Deborah Logan comes to mind. That's sort of built on the idea that old people are really weird and kind of gross. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't want to get too into my social science. Uh, you know, put that hat on too deeply. But I mean, we've seen towns outlaw. Uh, graveyards, you know, in California, mm-hmm. we there's I think a real criticism of our culture that is valid that we tend to warehouse our old people and just kind of put them out of sight. And so the metaphor for AIDS or the metaphor for aging, I think, raises some really good questions for people uh, who watch this movie about how we're supposed to relate to the cultural other who may be because of a disease or because of a different life situation, uh, you know, less easy for us to relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also this was a, a reference to cancer. Oh, sure. That makes sense. You know, and how we see how we see people again who are one minute you're, you know, you're you're healthy, you're alive, you're in the best shape of your life. And then the next I mean, seemingly and sometimes this has happened, you know, you find out you have cancer. And the next thing you know, you're sickly and you're dying and you're 
um, you know, you're a shell basically of your former self. So, and I've known um, people who, from within that situation, uh, you know, in a way that I was like, you know, you kind of have to doggedly not entertain, but that they don't want people to see them in that state. You know, they say, don't, don't come to the hospital. I don't want you to see me like this. And you have to kind of say, nope, I love you no matter your, you know, your physical situation. And I want to be with you while you suffer. But nonetheless, I, I think it, it makes sense as a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking, you know, I mentioned Cronenberg. Are you into Cronenberg movies? You know, I have seen a couple Cronenberg movies, but I I wouldn't say that he's on my list of like best directors or anything. Yeah, um, I know he's he's kind of beloved in the community that of horror fans that we belong to. Mm-hmm. But he's not been a big a big uh, part of my fandom either. Yeah, I did really enjoy A History of Violence. I know that had like mixed reactions and responses and stuff, but I thought it was a good movie. Yeah, uh, so I'm with you. Not surprisingly, that. That's my favorite movie of his until I saw The Fly, and it's like 1A, 1B. Yeah. Uh, I know I have seen Scanners. I don't remember much of it. I know I have seen The Dead Zone. also don't remember much of it. Uh, I watched, or I tried to watch Crash. Did you ever see that? The Like the one that won all the Oscars? Yeah, that's why I tried to track it down. I, a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna watch the Oscar contenders for every year to kind of get a film education. And Crash is about this group of people. It's got James Spader in it, which is a bonus. You know, like that's a that's a positive. But they get sexually aroused over uh, traffic accidents that physically right. hurt people. And uh, I just couldn't do it, man. I just yeah. I made it part of the way through and thought, I know the synopsis now. I know the beats. I'm good. Yeah. OK, so um, so there was another movie called Crash that was in 2004. Uh, it was the one that had all the Oscar hype. Well, the the one I'm talking about, 96, the Cannes Film Festival gave it basically its highest award. And then really? It, yeah. Um, it Francis Ford Coppola uh, is the one who led the way on it, and they gave it what's called a special jury prize, which means the the deciding jury at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, says, we don't really have a category for this, but this is such a great movie, we want to create one to give it a prize. And then it got nominated for Best Picture that year um, and something else, because that's how it ended up on my radar, because it was so so lauded during award season. (laughs) But it is out there. That's interesting. I didn't didn't know that it was nominated for Oscars. I see that that it was up for like the Palme d'Or at Cannes, but I didn't know that it was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, Maybe... Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, again, I encountered it when I was trying to watch Oscar movies. Yeah, I thought it was up for Best Picture. I'm, I might be wrong about that. Yeah. Now again, I know that the 2004 Crash was. A matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it won. Oh really? Yeah. That one was like, I mean, largely built on themes of racism, right? Yeah, yeah, it did win. Uh, the 2004 one won Best Motion Picture of the Year, uh, directed by Paul Haggis. Um, had Don Cheadle, Sandra Bullock, Andy Newton. Yeah, uh, Andy Newton was really good in that. I, I did watch that yeah. one too. Um, yeah, I, maybe I'm conflating the two, but again, I know that I watched both of those around that time when I was like, "Let's go watch the award winners." So yeah, maybe I just got mixed uh, up. Yeah, I've heard of I've heard of the '96 crash just because um, I've heard it's crazy and it's you know it's it's rated NC-17. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, that makes sense out of what I saw. I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it plays with stuff that you think about with Cronenberg, like body horror, um, but just in a different way. Um, yeah. But I say all that just to, to say, I, the, out of the movies of his I've tried, there's a couple I have forgotten. Uh, there's one I gave up on, and there's two that I really like. And uh, he seems to have a path. He seems to have, like, let's look at technology, what it can do to us, and then let's look at how it 
warps or modifies or destroys the human body. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I mean, those are those are uh, (laughs) it's weird to say motifs, but those are things that he's he's known for. Yeah. And it's chock full in uh, the flies, chock full of those things, man. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, the, really, the last thing I want to talk about is the, the, the effects and the, the major scenes that those are played out in. So mm-hmm. if you've got more, let's let's talk about your side of the, the equation and then we'll we'll go to mine. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, I don't really feel like that there's there's too much else that I, I want to talk about besides that. I, f- I feel like that's that's a big thing that we need to talk about. Um, I did find it interesting that uh, Cronenberg talked about how afraid of the baboons he was because this was a time where like Andy Serkis couldn't put a bunch of golf balls on himself and turn into an ape. Yeah. Uh, so they actually had baboons and they were pretty much like wild animals. They weren't trained actors or anything. Uh, but the the uh, the apes, the baboons, I'm sorry, were uh, excuse me, Jeff Goldblum was able to keep those primates in check, huh, no uh, you know, apparently because he was like, you know, pretty, I mean, he's, he's definitely really fit in this movie. Uh, and of course, he's six foot four and stuff. So I guess they looked at him as like the alpha male. Gotcha. And so he was he was able to kind of like dominate him. And I guess the baboons wranglers were, you know, the same thing. But uh, I guess the baboon wrangler said that it was a good thing that the baboon had formed that kind of relationship with Jeff Goldblum. Otherwise, they would have been in big trouble with some of the female members of the crew. Oh, gotcha. Uh, yeah. So, but it's That's just, it's disturbing. crazy. Yeah, it is. But it's crazy to me that like, you know, Jeff Goldblum is the alpha male <laughs> amongst these baboons. Well, man, you can see it in the movie because like there's multiple times that thing just hops up in his arms and loves on him. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really funny. But I guess uh, primal domination is... It just makes sense that that would be one of Goldblum's superpowers. Yeah, animal magnetism just makes sense. It's Jeff Goldblum. Sure, sure, one hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you know who was offered the role of Seth, Seth Brundle but turned it down? Uh, lay it on me, Michael Keaton. Yeah, uh, this would have been in his wheelhouse, right? Yeah. I'm so glad. Can you imagine Michael Keaton looking up to Gina Davis for the whole movie? No, that that would be terrible. He would have had to been on an apple crate. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And even just like the physicality. I mean, Goldblum was in great shape here. I don't know what uh, what age he was, but but, you know, he had his superhero game on and uh, he looks like a million bucks. And so like when he, you know, when the stunt doubles are doing all the crazy gymnastic stuff, you're like, ah, maybe that guy could do it. You know, yeah. I don't know that Keaton could pull that off quite as quite as well. Yeah. Uh, Goldblum was right around my age when he did this movie. Huh. Well, so 30, 32, 33. He was doing all right at 32, 33. Yeah, he wasn't bad. Uh, uh, you know what? Jeff Goldblum's still not doing bad. So. No, no. <laughs> I've got friends of mine who still have uh, still have crushes on it. So sure, he's doing okay. He's doing okay. Well, uh, can we talk about some of the crazy scenes in this thing? Yeah, man, let's talk it up. It's just so full of them. And and again, I usually don't like this stuff, but once things go sideways, once the fly is integrated, uh, there is just so much visually going on. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can go from from least to greatest. But like when he's pulling his fingernails off. Oh, jeez, dude, that. Is so like body shiveringly cringy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was at that moment that I thought, man, I hope Jeff doesn't think this is a Event Horizon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, know, just knowing your preference on, you know, on uh, horror and things like that, I was like, man, I really hope, I really hope Jeff likes this movie. Yeah, it, it shouldn't have worked, man. But I was like, I was probably leaning forward. Like I felt like I was in his shoes, being like, what is happening to my body right now? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and maybe even before that, the way that they subtly start changing his body, like when his his facial, uh, his skin on his face starts getting discolored. Mm-hmm. And when he snaps on Gina Davis, when she refuses to go through the teleporter, mm-hmm. uh, that was incredible acting. And it was, again, super Jeff Goldblumy because he goes into this rambling monologue with science terms. <laughs> but then you end up in the bar and he, he snaps that dude's arm while they're mm-hmm. arm wrestling. Uh, my wife was like, nope, 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 nope. You know, she just, and, and normally I would be with her too. But again, you're just seeing this guy become something inhuman and they, they measured it out at a perfect pace, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did a really good job and they did a really good job in turning him into the villain. Yeah. Uh, but still, even though I think a villain that we don't just utterly despise. Yeah. We're kind yeah. of heartbroken. Yeah, I mean, if if you're not a little sad that the, that this thing ends the way it does, and you you may not have a heart. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what else did you want to? Well, you know, pull the the teeth falling out. Um, mm-hmm. Him climbing around on the ceiling and being delighted by it mm-hmm. is just unsettling, you know. And I, the only thing I could think of in comparison was The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. She, yeah, I got strong Exorcist vibes around that point. And it's completely different kinds of horror, right? And, like, you have a different reaction. Like, when you see see it in The Exorcist, you know there's some infernal spirit here. Uh, but the fact that, that Goldblum is so happy about it when he's doing it initially, I think changes it. Because you're, yet again, it's just another move forward in the, this guy's becoming unhuman and he's happy about it. You know, it made sense mm-hmm. when he was like full of energy and super strong and super agile. But at this point he should not be delighted. And yet he is. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's also after he thought that he was dying, wasn't it? Yeah. He kind of got like this renewed energy. Yeah. And he, and it's a really great monologue too. the insect politics thing. Mm-hmm. I want to be the first insect politician. I mean, again, I, I've said it a thousand times, the most gold bloomy dialogue ever. Yeah. But coming from his half fly uh, changed face is... It's just eerie. I mean, I, I don't. I'm 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 grappling with my vocabulary to describe the way that it just feels unsettling. Would you Would you vote for Seth Brundle uh, for your local state politician? <laughs> uh, I don't know that he's any less human than, uh, than the ones that are already serving. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Actually, he, he eats poop, and the other ones make us eat poop. Yeah. So I guess that's the biggest difference. Yeah, I mean, there's something inherently dehumanizing about politics. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, actually, I don't know who those people are. So if any of y'all are listening, or your relatives are listening, <laughs> I'm sorry, I actually don't know who I'm talking about here. Um, be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> be afraid. Then, uh, so the you know the transformation at the well, actually before. Sorry, I, I'm a little out of sorts here. Oh, you're fine. I I would love to talk to somebody who was an adult when this movie came out because the way that they really lean into showing uh, Gina Davis's character having abortion mm-hmm. was uh, I, I just I would have to imagine that was really controversial at the time because this is not like she goes goes to the clinic. They tell her to put a robe on, and then we come back after like. They're up in her business. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm just blown away by, one, how much they portrayed of that, and two, that it happened in, like, a major theatrical release in the mid-'80s. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that kind of blew me away, too, because, honestly, I don't think we would do that now. I, I totally agree. Uh, my wife and I had that conversation, like— 
I, I, I think that would there would be protests over something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, there would definitely be some boycotts and, and things like that going on with the movie. Uh, it, uh, the 80s were a crazy time, man. I don't remember much of it, but I remember the flag. Yeah, and this one, I mean, this one made a ton of money. Um, yeah. So I, I assume it didn't put people off. I guess I was just surprised that it was... Yeah. That it was there. Um, so, uh, speaking of that that scene, do you know that there was a second scene shot of that where she dreams that her child has beautiful butterfly wings? Yeah, so that's also on YouTube. Okay, and I didn't know if it was or not. It 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 was a good cut. <laughs> yeah, it's a good cut. I, yeah, I've seen it before, and I was like, oh yeah, you sh- you definitely should have got rid of that. It's like stop motion animation and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Do you know that this was originally a Tim Burton? Like, they wanted Tim Burton to direct this movie? Well, I guess that makes sense. And I can see why some Hollywood exec would think that would work. But I'm I'm really glad this went to Cronenberg. Yeah. Cronenberg seems to maintain a sense that these things should be repulsive and should kind of horrify us. Uh-huh. I don't think Burton has that sensibility. I think he thinks we're supposed to delight in them. Uh, not in an ironic way, but just like, it's awesome. And yeah. I don't think that's the sensibility that, that this movie would have survived. Yeah, I I agree. I think that, you know, Mel Brooks being the producer on this would have been completely um, reasonable had Tim Burton been a part of it, right? Because yeah. we probably would have been looking at this as more of a satire or a comedy than, than the, the great movie that we got. So. Yeah. so I should have known, but the most surprising scene in this uh in this movie is when the final form of Brundlefly is revealed. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's jarring in and of itself to just see him kind of like step out of a skin suit. Yeah. But narratively, you know, he is just, the Brundlefly has just kidnapped Gina Davis from the abortion clinic or whatever. And he had her up on the, the rooftop and he said, that's the last you know, remaining vestiges of me don't don't kill Brundle. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we, we have this hard uh, back and forth. The monster breaks through the wall and takes the girl. Like, this is straight out of King Kong, right? Right. Should be totally inhuman. But he ends up on the rooftop and you're like, no, there's still a lot of human in there. And then he freaking drops the meat suit. And uh, again, I should have seen it coming, dude, but that was the most surprising, uh, jarring moment in the movie, probably for me. Mm-hmm. It blew me out of my out of my socks. <laughs> yeah, you don't. I mean, I guess you see it coming, right? Like, yeah. you've got to see him in his final form. But it it is jarring. Uh, even after all this time rewatching it the other day, I was like, oh, oh, there it is. That's this. That's that's what scarred me as a child. Yeah. I can't remember if that version or the one right before it is uh, the, the version of the Brundlefly that like vomits on Stathis limbs and starts eating mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that looked clearly like animatronics to me. Yeah. And I wonder if I weren't a child of the 80s in some sense, if that would have been more like, oh, gosh, look how dated this looks. Yeah. But in some some ways, I think that the animatronics helped me feel the, uh, you know, the the subhumanity of what this creature had become more, mm-hmm. and it really worked. And uh, uh, it worked pretty similar to the way him stepping out of his out of his flesh helped me uh, connect with how horrifying this whole thing is. Yeah, yeah, and kudos to them for like. Still, man, th- this could have been really campy, really mm-hmm. over the top, and there's just a lot of emotional gravitas with all of them, with uh, with Goldblum and Gina Davis, and then the guy playing uh, Stathis as well. Like, um, everyone did their part, and you know, you really are terrified that like 
Brundlefly is going to merge with uh, Veronica and the baby into some weird hybrid of the three of them. And ultimately, creepy Stathis turns out to be the quote unquote hero, you know, by shooting the the pod and making sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, so it's, it's weird how the tables turn because I hated that dude through that whole movie. Yeah, but like he's the only one at the end who, I mean, I guess you hadn't let a lot of people in, but like he's clearly committed to standing up to Brundle on behalf of Gina Davis's character, you know, even at risk to himself. Yeah. And he ends up being the dude who comes through at the end. Um, at least in like trying to regain his shotgun. And even though he's hurt, you know what I mean? He's hurt. He's trying to, he's trying to take care of this. He shoots the telepod wire or whatever. Um, it, it was a stunning rehabilitation of the character. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. They, they, uh, and, and they do a really good job of, of almost turning him baby face. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's a really, and, and it's subtle too. Like he, he doesn't, he's still a, a jerk. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's still a D bag, but he, he's, he is the one that fights for the girl and, and ultimately keeps her from, you know, again, from turning into this hybrid mutant, uh, monstrosity. So yeah, that, that being the plan for Brundle, that he would become a combination of her and the baby and himself. Uh, I don't know, man, that's a really disturbing thought. Um, yeah. And he kind of earns in that way, you know, narratively, he kind of earns what happens to him where that, that's nothing I just did not expect. I didn't expect the final teleportation gene splicing where he becomes this metal fly human thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and such a such a punchy decision to make the last scene of the movie be her blowing his head off. Yeah. Uh Again, it's just a roller coaster there at the end, and the ride is over before you really realize what's happened to you. Yeah. Uh, I watched a review where a guy was kind of juxtaposing the 58 film and the uh, the one we're reviewing here, and he kind of played over the head-blowing-up scene a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, you've got some real guts to make that the last the last thing in your movie. But Cronenberg did it, and yeah. audiences responded. Yeah, when when you end a movie with Gina Davis's sobs, that's a that's a ballsy way to go out. Yeah, no kidding, man. And I guess that's why everybody. Well, there's a lot, but these things we've been talking about is why this movie is so indelible. He went bold. He went big. He went what what looks to me like it must have been risky at the time. And uh, not only does it hold up 33 years later for a guy who's never seen it, but it's just stuck in everybody's collective memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, It's it's crazy the things that like stick in your memory. But when uh, Iron Man came out in 2008, Robert Downey Jr. was doing an interview and he said, I just love movies. He said, "I, I, I just love film. He said, you know, I used to love Chaplin's movies. He goes, I'm still engrossed in Jeff Goldblum in the fly when he's, you know, turning into Brundlefly and he's all, you know, doing the head twitches and stuff. He goes, I just I find that stuff fascinating. And, and it always just stuck with me like here's one of the greatest actors of our generation talking about this movie that for all intents and purposes should be a B-level horror movie and has transcended time and is still talked about as this amazing um, horror classic. Yeah, well, he's right. Uh, unsurprisingly, he's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's good stuff, man. All the way around. I'm I'm so glad that you that you enjoyed it because it really I really was worried that that maybe I'd overhyped it or or uh, you know it 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 wasn't going to live up to to what I had told you you know told you that it was. But it's still one of my favorites, and I'm really happy that we were able to to uh, honor it on its 33rd anniversary. 
Yeah, I'm I'm so thankful that that you proposed that and that was the call. Um, we had talked about covering it, I think, a couple times, but had never really committed to it. And this week was perfect. Um, so again, to maybe this is the last thing I'll say. I don't like gory horror. It's not my thing. But there are three movies now that fit that descriptor that I really love. One, you hate, Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Two, John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. And three, now The Fly. Yeah, uh, it you know it's uh it's in a very special category of my fandom at this point. Yeah, it's it's great, and it you know. I really don't think that I've revisited this movie, like I said before, in probably 10 or 15 years, maybe longer. And it was really fun to just put it on and, and rewatch it and go through those, still go through those beats, that how I saw it when I was a kid. And oftentimes that doesn't happen. I mean, you know that, you know, you'll watch a movie mm-hmm. that you, you watch as a child and you're like, you thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Then you watch it as an adult and you're like, oh my gosh, why did I spend so much time watching this movie when I was sure. a kid? And uh, this one was different. This one was the same. Like I still felt the same feelings that I felt as a child. And uh, I think that that makes it a pretty special movie when it can transcend over 30 years of time and still make you feel the same way it did the first time. 100 percent, man. 100%. Well, buddy, I'm I'm thankful. I appreciate you. And uh, yeah. thankful to Goldblum and Davis and Cronenberg and whoever greenlit the budget for this. This is a good one. And I'm really glad yeah. to have uh, to finally have seen it. Absolutely. Now, I will tell you this. Stay as far away as possible from the fly, too. Yes, yeah, so I read about that one. And uh, I, I think that's good counsel based on what I've read. Yeah. Yep, I caught it. I caught it one night. Uh, I think I was like 10 or 11. I caught it one night back when, uh, you know, the cable networks would play old horror movies, you know, after a certain time. And uh, I caught it one night and I was like, oh, The Fly 2. I wonder wonder if this is going to be, you know, any good. And the only good thing about it is the recycled footage they use of Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> okay, so they splice some of that in there. Yeah. And, uh, and the guy that plays Stannis, Stathis, whatever his name is, he's in it as well. Uh, but that's those are the only two ties that it has to the original. Yeah, those are not the elements I would want to bring back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the the synopsis for those of you that are curious: the almost human son of Brundlefly searches for a cure to his mutated genes while being monitored by a nefarious corporation that wishes to continue his father's experiments. I've seen some clips, and they try to do the same like gradual transformation stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whoever the special effects coordinator was, either it wasn't the same guy, or he had lost his fastball. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but I mean, obviously, Cronenberg's not a part of it. Um, you know, again, the only the only person that st- sticks around is is uh, John Getz. Actually, you know, I guess this is, this is sort of an epiphany at the end. I, I thought I'd said all I had to say. Chris Wallace, I, I was struck at the end of the fly that the first person's name who comes up is Chris. I think I'm saying it right. Chris Wallace, W A L A S, and he's listed as the makeup and creature effects. It says like the fly was created by. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's really surprising that Cronenberg, Jeff Goldblum's, you know, like that. That's not the first name mentioned. They went with the yeah. special effects guy. In hindsight, that makes sense because uh, he's he's doing something that we're never going to forget in that movie, right? Right. But he's the guy who directed the fly part, too. Right. And I don't know what happened, man. He must have needed Cronenberg to handle the movie-making part while he just handled the effects. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, to my earlier supposition, he, he didn't have his fastball for this one. Yeah, I I agree. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely not something that you want to you go out of your way to watch. 
But um, but yeah, anyway, let's not end it on a bad note. Uh, the Fly is awesome. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely go out of your way to watch it again. It's on. Uh, I think I, I think I rented it on uh, Vudu the other day for like three or four dollars, but it's on anything. YouTube, Amazon Prime, um, all those things. And you can you can rent it uh, for as little as four dollars. And I highly recommend doing so. Jeff Wright. On a scale of one to ten, where would you rank the fly? I mean, my heart says eight. Um, a boy. I'm going to pull it back to a seven just because there's not a lot of plot there. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot of story. But, I mean, I'm telling you, I was enthusiastic in my watch through on this. So, call me a seven. And, again, my affections probably rise higher than that. Uh, so, I've, I'm tracking with you. Um, I would say an eight. But to be um, unbiased, probably seven and a half for the yeah. same reasons that you said. Yeah. I mean, it's not really a criticism. It's just noting that, like, it's almost perfect, except you can't put it among, like, the very top most tier of horror movies. Right. It, it's definitely a solid second tier horror movie. I think people are going to be talking about it for my entire lifetime, and, and I expect well beyond. And this, this mm-hmm. movie sticks with you, and it holds up. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and I hope that that's true. I hope that this movie uh, is talked about long after we're gone. Yeah, I think it will be. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty uh, pretty easy to know the answer on this. But anyway, it's part of the bit. Did we see something scary? Yeah, for sure. Just all kinds yeah. of body horror stuff. I, I'm never going to have a nightmare about the fly, I don't think. Well, good on you. But, well, I, mean, I didn't say it when I was three years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am. I was legitimately creeped out and mortified multiple times. So definitely saw some scary. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, I think it's a great movie, and uh, I think you know if if like I said before, if it's a movie that can still hit you the same way thirty years in between viewings or whatnot, I think it's a great movie. And uh, when he turns into that fly at the end of it, like at the very end of it, it's it's terrifying. So oh boy, is it? Yep. So uh, definitely gonna definitely gonna agree with you on that one. So all right, man. Well, we'll put a bow on the on the fly. Uh, we'll swat it down, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to do this. Hey, man, are you interested at all in this Ready or Not movie? Dude, I am so incredibly not interested in that. If uh, okay. if our listeners and you want to review it, I'll do that because I love y'all. But uh, I've, I've tried to keep my head down on that because there's some enthusiasm for it in our Facebook group. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw it, it, it immediately went into, I will never watch that category. Okay. I, I kind of feel the same way. Okay. Well, uh, if you change, again, you have that card in my life, but initially, no, my, my gut instinct is to be out. Okay. I'm, I'm good with that. Now, it does have a 7, 7.2 on IMDb, so that's impressive. Yeah. Can I, can I offer just a gentle hypothesis on that without sure. trying to pick a fight? I think we're in an age where um, where people really want to see rich people get what's coming to them. Mm-hmm. And I say that like I don't actually believe that. I, I I'm thankful that certain people can can gain wealth and pass it off to their children. So I'm not I'm not endorsing a particular political perspective. I'm just saying that like we're at a place where it's kind of eat the rich. You know, is is a cultural sure. moment. And uh, I wonder if some of that is driving it. That it's just cathartic for some people who are upset about the social order uh, that they see as oppressive are getting a chance to have some proxy therapy. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that you're 100% right on that. I think that is where the appeal of this movie comes from. Um, I know that there's a few people in the Facebook group who are watching it. I'll be interested to see what they think. Depending on what they say, maybe I'll go check it out. Um, I know the only theater playing it around me is the Alamo Draft House, so it would just give me another reason to go visit my favorite movie theater. <laughs> yeah, see, I might go watch it at the Alamo Draft House. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess I want to stick all the qualifications in. I don't care if you agree with me or disagree with me on my social order perspective. I don't think that's 
a that's a requirement to be a good person one way or the other. I just I'm suspicious that's part of what's driving the film. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're wrong on that. So I was just trying to figure out what we're going to do for next week. I know that that's that's out and prevalent. So uh-huh. yeah, we're just all kind of biding time till it chapter two comes out. But we'll figure well, something you're, out. You're not, you're not lying. We're so close, dude. Mm-hmm. We are so close. Two weeks out. So very excited about that. All right, uh, let's do some housekeeping real quick. We've talked about it already. There's different ways that you can help us with the podcast. Uh, the first one would be to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do that on whatever podcast platform that you're listening to. Apple Podcast, if you can give us a five-star review on that, that would be uh, tremendously helpful. Helps the algorithm, helps other people that may not know about our show, learn about our show, and uh, and get to be a part of the community. That's the second way. Uh, we have a Facebook group. Most of you know it by now. So we saw something scary. All you got to do is uh, type that in the search bar at Facebook, hit uh, join group, and within seconds, we're going to uh, we're going to admit you into the Midnight Society, and then we have all sorts of fun over there. So again, the Facebook group is We Saw Something Scary. And then the third and final way is uh, we do have Patreon, and we would love for you to come be a partner with us in that, uh, patreon.com forward slash scary podcast. There's four different tiers for you to uh, contribute to, and all four of them have great uh, you know, great uh, prizes and levels and fun and all sorts of good stuff like that. So anywhere from a dollar to ten dollars a month, we're not trying to break the bank with you guys. We just we're just asking you to help us be the best podcast that we can be. So again, five star reviews, Facebook group, and um, fork over the money. I was just trying to make that alliterate. So <laughs> I think I did a pretty good job on that. Uh, we do have a new podcast that that Jeff and I are excited about. We're I'm sort of involved in it. Uh, Jeff is not, but it's called ramblings from nowhere it's by a good friend of the show jason hall and the first episode is up on all of the po- all of your podcasting platforms and jason and i on that uh, episode we dive into the world of hobbs and shaw we also talk about venom 2 and um, uh, other different things that are going on uh, in pop culture so again the name of that is ramblings from nowhere and you can subscribe to that and listen uh, for those of you that may want to listen to your pop culture news with more of a faith-based uh, spin on it. You can listen to Jeff's other podcast that he has with our buddy Jared called the uh, Pop Culture Quorum Deo, and you can subscribe to that on all of your podcasting platforms as well. And uh, they also have a Facebook group called the uh, Pop Culture Quorum Deo Power Hour Funhouse <laughs> Extravaganza. And <laughs> You can uh, all you gotta do is just type in Pop Culture Quorum Deo, and you'll be able to uh, to find the the Facebook group from there. And it's a lot of fun. It's it's just like our Facebook group that we have with Saw Something Scary. It's it's a lot of fun as well. Uh, what else is going on? Hey, so I haven't I haven't brought this up. I don't think, but we're getting into the final days of it. So I'd love to get a push, especially from you guys. Uh, I think maybe I put it up on the Facebook group at one point. But I have been nominated as one of the best comedians in Branson, Missouri. Yeah. And and so if you'll just do me a favor, go to uh, votebestofbranson.com. Uh, it's the worst voting thing I've ever seen. Uh, but votebestofbranson.com. Uh, click the entertainment button, click comedian, and then uh, click the button that says Skeeter for Dolly Parton Stampede. That gives me a vote, and hopefully I can win this thing and make this time here at the Cracker Barrel of Towns worth my time. Can I uh, ask a question about that? So I've already voted yeah. in that. And, Thank uh, you. I'm wondering 
if this is a one-time only vote deal or like can I vote once a day? Do you know how that thing works? Because you're right. It is a clunky interface. Uh, it is. Uh, and thank you for asking that. Uh, you can vote every day. Okay. So, um, yeah, and the, the votes are open until Labor Day. So we've got about a week and a half left until uh, we figure out or till the until the polls close. So if you can make a reminder or make a note for yourself to vote every day on that thing for the next week and a half, that would be awesome. Uh, vote bestofbranson.com. Uh, entertainment, comedian, skeeter, and then make sure and submit your vote because otherwise it doesn't it doesn't count. So um, just all the fun there. Uh, um, and then let's see uh, two special things that, that I just want to shout out really quick. Uh, as we're, the day that we're recording this is August the twenty first. It is Lucy Southwell's birthday. Yeah, happy, happy birthday, birthday Lucy. Lucy Southwell. Yeah, uh, twenty four today. So happy birthday to you. And also, uh, I have a niece now, Jeff. I don't know if you know this or not. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, little Callie Blakeman Haston was born, uh, I believe, on Thursday of last week. Uh, she's gorgeous, uh, which is crazy because she looks like her father, but <laughs> she is just perfect. And uh, mom and baby and everyone are doing great. So just wanted to shout out Big Al on that. Uh, congratulations Wonderful. on your on your first on your first kid, buddy. Yes, much congratulations. Oh, I'm, I, I love hearing about babies uh, being born, man. That that is uh, it's a delightful sign that the future is continuing on. Even when it's dark, man, babies babies remind us there's a lot of good left. Yeah, and she's a cutie, man. She yeah. is a she's a cutie. So uh, can't wait to to get home and and uh, get to meet her face to face. I'm done. I think that's it, man. You and I've been talking for quite a while, so I think we've exhausted everything that we can. Yes, sir. I appreciate the uh, the extra innings, and hope uh, hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure, Jeff. And uh, we'll let you guys know sometime this week what. Uh, what we're doing for next week patreon peeps you know that you is already up uh give that a listen we will probably have your next up sometime within the next week uh on patreon as well so and that's a that's a uh, episode that you guys won't hear here so if you want to hear what we think about your next go get on patreon forward slash scary podcast and i think if you contribute three dollars a month you get the bonus episodes so uh not a bad deal there so all right oh we're done thank you guys so much for listening listening as always uh this is jeff nope that's not my name uh for jeff wright <laughs> you've been on the mic too long brother holy smokes uh for jeff wright this is Derek zoo saying thank you for listening and reminding you to stay away from clouds and sewers white people teacups and blind men with turkey basters we'll see you guys back here next week bye bye man <laughs> <laughs>